Aloha folks and welcome back to Degree Free. I'm your host, Ryan Mariyama, and on this podcast, we share fundamentals we've discovered and the mistakes we've made while self-educating, getting work, building businesses, and making money. Today, my guest is James Quandall. James Quandall is an author, entrepreneur, performance coach, and host of the James Quandall Show. We have a very wide-ranging conversation for you today where we talk about interview tips, James's background in retail and how he knew within 45 seconds whether he was going to hire somebody. Tips that you can do during your interviews, the family board meeting, podcasting, selling on Amazon, you name it, we talk about it. Just as always, you can find links to everything in our show notes, degreefree.co slash podcast. This episode will be degreefree.co slash James Quandall. J-A-M-E-S-Q-U-A-N-D-A-H-L. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with James Quandall. What I think of is if we were to give people the recipe of how to do it, they might not have the skills to like cook it basically. I, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but if they if we if we were to tell them exactly, it reminds me of have you ever read uh like the Four Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. Uh, oh, yeah. I know, I know mm-hmm. that you, I know that you read a lot uh, prolifically, and um, so one of the things in there is uh, the slow carb diet, and I think a supplement in one of his podcasts, he talks about how he doesn't give advice anymore, like he just doesn't give, he doesn't tell people what to do because he's like, I can tell you everything that you need to do in order to lose weight and build muscle and get the physique you want and it can fit on an index card but i don't do that anymore because i've done it for so many people and they never end up doing it and so Mm -hmm. instead what he found is better is he's just like just buy my book and that's not necessarily pumping his book although it is you know indirectly but it's just if you take the time to go through it and commit yourself to those you know to those practices or to those ideas, then you'll you'll have a better outcome. He just re- released a podcast, Tim Ferriss, in the last couple of weeks with Cal Newport, and he was the author of Deep Work, which was no- which was another great book. And it was sort of like this revisiting the four hour work week book, and that book was life changing for me. And actually, I hadn't read it when I first met Tim Ferriss, and I think it was 2015. Um, it was 2016 that I actually quit my job and decided to create this life that I'm on now. And I'll give some of the credit to Timothy Ferris in that book, but it was so many other things. But the the interesting thing is, is there has to be some type of a motivator, some type of event that takes you to say, well, this is enough. I need to do something different. And we were talking a little about weight loss and, and getting in shape. And there's always, you hear, you see these huge radical transformations all the time. And if you go up to the person like, well, what, like, what was the, what, what did it? And it will be some story of some kind, like a family member's illness, or they got some diagnosis, or there was something. It's very rarely like, oh, I just decided one day I was going to get in shape finally. So I think the, the, the system is to figure out what is, what's going to motivate you to get where you want to go. And before we were recording, we were talking about goals. And I think you start with kind of a lofty, long-term vision of where you want to go. And then you need to somehow find that trigger that gets you walking on that journey. 
And then the tools and the tactics, like you said about Tim, he mentioned on that podcast, the the tools and the tactics are what kind of went buzzworthy. Like everyone wants the newest Chrome extension or the newest Google plugin to make their work quicker. But like the philosophy and the mindset are really what revolutionize your life. And I think that's why he says you have to read the four hour chef or the four hour body or the four hour work week in its entirety because he sets the book up to get you in the right frame of mind at the beginning. And then when you have the knowledge and the willingness, he gives you the tactics and the tools to go and do it. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I wholeheartedly subscribe to that and which it's what we do with the people that we help at degree free is we always, you have to start with why, like, why are you going to (laughs) do like, why are you going to do anything? Uh, this stuff is hard. I mean, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to do things that you've never done before. You have to talk to people that you, you've never thought that you would ever talk to. Um, and what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, why are you, why are you doing this? Is it because you want to build a better life? Is it because you want to lose weight? Is it because you want to right have a family and you can't afford it? And when you go on these journeys, like, you know, trying to create a life that's degree free a hundred years ago, uh, there weren't degrees really probably very many. And so it wasn't that strange to not have a degree. It was actually more strange to have a degree. So sometime in the last hundred years, it became, if you don't get a degree, you will not be successful. So if you are a person listening to this and you're on the fence and you're choosing, if you're going to, you know, follow in the footsteps of what everyone's doing, or you're going to go on your own path, you just have to know that you're going to be weird and you're going to be different. And that might be the hardest thing because for me, it's always like, well, when people ask me what I do, it's not like I have like a one word answer. It's like, well, depending on the week, it could be anything. It's my life is different every single day because I designed it this way. And so I think that's always what's really challenging is being different because it's, it's hard to explain what you're doing and why. Right. Well, you know, what's interesting is actually still only one third of the American population have degrees two-thirds of the population still don't have degrees. So if you don't have a degree, which I'm uh, pretty sure you don't, you know, my wife doesn't. I do um, not. I I went to uh, college twice and dropped out both times after less than a semester. Uh, <laughs> I tried twice. I, after the first time, I was like, all right, a few years later, I was a little more mature. You know, I was paying cash as I went. I dropped out. I didn't even finish the first semester and I went back and kept working. I was like, let me try this again just to make sure. And I went to one class and I was like, yep. And I blew whatever. I I just paid it off. I didn't even like ask for my money back. I'm like, well, I think a better way to learn a lesson is just to sometimes lose the money and then you will remember it a little bit longer. Right. Yeah. You just take the L. (laughs) Just take the loss. Um, So did you go to community college or did you, was it, where were you enrolled or was it a four year college? It was two different community colleges, actually. Okay. I thought maybe if I tried a different one, it would have a different experience. And it was, it was, it just wasn't there for me. It just, I was already a manager of a clothing store. And I think at this point I was 18 or 19 years old. And I was learning so much there, practical wisdom and skills. And then I went into a classroom and I'm like, I'm taking a Spanish class and an English class. I have 30 employees on my team who don't speak English and only speak Spanish, and I'm learning Spanish from them. Why do I need Spanish 101, and why do I need this English class? Like, 
I just couldn't connect the dots on why I was needing that. And so I just stuck with the retail track and ended up being in retail 15 something years before I, I call it my retirement. And I learned so much there. And I actually wrote an article once trying to persuade recruiters to hire retail managers instead of Harvard MBAs. And I said, these are all the skills that a retail manager has that a Harvard MBA may or may not have, but the retail manager for sure has it because I learned so much there. It's unbelievable. So what, I guess, what are those skills? Because we do a similar, Hannah and I both have um, the same background in that we both come from the restaurant industry. And so we know that in, we know that inside and out and we feel the same way. Like we write, we, we write articles and we do podcast episodes about how people are making a mistake by not hiring restaurant employees because they are so good at everything soft skills because they do it every day. And so I'm not that mm-hmm. versed in retail. Like what, what are the skills? It's similar to what you would expect in the restaurant industry. Absolutely. The customer service and the salesmanship. So we were selling appliances and televisions and going into homes and, and, and fixing televisions and installing televisions. So you're in the weeds with a customer every single day for your entire shift. You can't, if you say, oh man, I wish there were no more customers today. Well, your building would be closed. And my store was a $25 million a year revenue store, just the one building. There's so many startups, people that own startups that are writing all these books about leadership and advice and all this stuff that are doing significantly less revenue than a $25 million a year retail store. And you can be a 20-year-old running a store like that, learning every part of that business from hiring people, how to select the right people, how to onboard them, how to train them, how to give them timely performance reviews and feedback and coaching, how to mentor them and help to help them blossom and flourish and see their full potential to the performance management side, how to coach and do role plays and do performance improvement plans and how to fire somebody. And that's just a tiny, tiny glimpse of what a manager would deal with, not including analyzing profit and loss statements and finding holes in your 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 cash flow statements and these all these things that just prepare you to operate any business basically because at the end of the day somehow it gets lost in translation but all businesses are basically serving a customer in some way someone has a need a business has a solution and there's an exchange and Businesses that get too far away from the people are setting themselves up for failure. And in the restaurant business and in the retail business, you physically cannot get away from people because a thousand of them walk through your doors every single day. So you have to stay sharp. You can't run away and hide. You can't have an autoresponder or some loop email thing that keeps them from actually getting to a human with a robot. Like They're gonna come in, they're gonna bang on the <laughs> counter and they're gonna demand that someone helps them right now. And man, I have stories. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it, this actually reminds me of a conversation that I was just having, um, Hannah and I are uh, on TikTok and uh, some a lot of people on there are saying, well, I'm an introvert, I, I can't do sales or I'm an introvert. I can't learn how to deal with people. And it's more, I find it interesting because personally I, I am 
introverted person. And, but it's all learned. You can learn how to do those things. You can learn how to do sales. You can learn how to uh, deal with customers or, you know, conflict resolution. I, I rate people. It's just, um, you, and in those settings, it's kind of trial by fire. It's, you're going to get people that you can't run away from exactly as you said. And I'll speak from the restaurant industry. When I was uh, behind the bar, there was no back of the house. I couldn't, with the place that I had, there was no kitchen or anything like that that I could run to. This place, this, I just had to deal with this person just yelling at me. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah. Yeah. As a manager of the Best Buy store, I was the last person. Like, if I said no, like, there was no one else that could come out from the back that could serve them. And so I got the worst of the worst. And I always made a point to my employees that I would be their defense person. Like if a, like they should not have a customer be yelling at them, like call me and like they should, they should do like, and, and I would defend the, the employee if, if someone in those irate situations. But as far as learning these skills, I was an introvert also before I got into retail. I had my small group of friends. I was a computer programmer. I played video games. I made video games. I did not have this outgoing salesmanship nature, this charisma that I now have that I've worked really hard to develop. It may have been within me, right? And some people say like, oh, well, you just, you, you didn't have, you had the potential, you just hadn't tapped that potential, but I had to learn it. My first day at Best Buy, I remember it so clearly. I almost, just like with the, the two colleges, I almost didn't go back. Because what you said, trial by fire, was absolutely true. It was like, hey, go help that customer. I'm like, go help that customer? I don't know anything. What do I even say to them? But the cool thing is, is when you help 100 customers a day for a year, you're putting in so many reps. Before long, you're going to be a machine at small talk and discovering what people are looking for and reading their emotions and being able to determine if they actually want help or if they're browsing. Like I could tell that across the entire store. And I knew which customers you could go on, like a full frontal, like, hey, what are you looking for? I'll find it for you. And which ones needed more time and and compassion. And I'd walk and pretend like I was straight in the shelf next to them. And I would grab my rag out of my pocket and dust the floor. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, hey, customer. Like, I didn't see you there. Like, how you doing today? Like, I could read that they needed some more time to before I could go and help them and and right so all of that can be learned and it was not intuitive and well, it really comes down to shadowing people who are good at it too and that can that can take make it take a lot less time but you'll figure it out eventually if you try right exactly <laughs> and one of the questions that I did want to ask was on the podcast with Hannah that on your show the James Quandall show everybody should subscribe the you said that you did a thousand interviews and with a lot of those interviews you knew within 45 seconds if you were going to hire that person and i guess like what like what were you looking for how did you know you know well like i said it it took repetitions but it was not a conscious thought like it wasn't like i'm walking out of my office going to go walk up to the front of the store 
and meet this person. And I'm like watching them as I'm walking up. And I'm like, hmm, let me see if this is going to be the person or not. It was nothing to do that. It was a walk up, say hello, look them in the eye, shake their hand, say, come on with me into the office and let's have a chat. And I could feel within that short time from that front of the building and taking them into the office if I was going to hire them or not and if they were going to be good or not. And, and the interview, I always followed the same questions like just for to be fair to everyone to give them a complete shot i always ask the same questions every single time but man when i got that good feeling it was a lot different for the that set of questions than if i got a feeling ah this is just this is a bad use of my time and i'd blow through the interview as fast as i could (laughs) now um i can tell you i can't tell you how i got those feelings but i can tell you some of the similarities, some of the traits that those people maybe had. And um, one of which is like they showed up on time. And you'd be shocked that that is a gift. But if you have an interview at 2 p.m. and you're strolling in at 2.05 or 2.10, 10, <laughs> that doesn't even make sense, You, I get things happen. But this is an interview. You should get there on time or 10, 15 minutes early. Like you can control that. Um, Sometimes you can't, and I get that. But that's your first impression that you're going to have. And there was nothing more impressive than me than when someone came in 30 minutes early, checked in at the front door, and they're like, hey, you know, I have an interview with James today. I'm pretty early, so I'm just going to walk around the store, and I love electronics. Like I'm just going to be shopping. Like I, that person was going to get hired. Like, they love electronics. They came early, and they're just going to look around. Like you know, they're going to get hired. Um, you can dress in the best outfit you have. I get you, you. You you need a job, and so you may not have the most amazing threads right now. But put some effort into it. Clothes are basically free at thrift stores. I work at a thrift store once a week. If you came in and said, "Hey, I have an interview. I need some duds," we would give you clothes for free. Almost any thrift store in America would. Not the thrift stores like in the trendy locales, but the real thrift stores, right? Like where we're actually like trying to help people. So get some clothes that look presentable and tuck your shirt in or wear shoes that aren't scuffed up. Like put a little effort in and a a great, I'm, I'm speaking in Best Buy lingo, but okay, you know at the time that they wore polos and khakis. So wouldn't it be crazy for you to wear khakis and a polo to that interview because you're already going to look like an employee. You're going to look like someone who fits in. So try to look like the job that you're going to go and try to get when you're coming in for an interview. Um, and those are just those are like basic things you can do before you even show up for an interview that are going to make you stand out versus the competition. And I, it's so sad how many people don't call if they're going to be late. If you're going to be late, just call. It's fine. Like, I understand if you have car trouble. I understand if you can't get a babysitter. I understand if you couldn't leave the job that you're trying to leave to come to the interview, but call me and say like, hey, I'm going to be 15 minutes late or can we reschedule or something? Don't just like say nothing. And I think you'll get so much further with that. And and those are just the basics, but then we could even go into like what you do as an individual once you're like, in the building, about to walk into the room. Yes, I mean, please. What I think, what do you have any questions about what, that? Does that I make think, sense? Yeah, so far? definitely. I think what you said is brilliant because, I mean, it's so simple. You're, if you just do those things right, you might not be starting 
off ahead, but you're at least not starting off behind. You don't have to fight out of that hole of that first impression that you just made. Right? We never get a second chance yeah. to make a first impression. And so once I walk into the... And bear in mind, I haven't seen these people's resumes. I typically only know their name and what time they're showing up. And I don't know anything about them besides that at that That's point. That's interesting. Okay, can you explain that a little bit more then? Why haven't you... Because why haven't you looked at the resume? Is it that HR just gave it to you and they said, here's who you're hiring? Or here's who you're so I had a, a back office manager that I would give them a day of the week and a, a time window and said, hey, fill this with interviews. It generally took me 45 minutes. I want 10 minutes between them and fill up this slot with time. And here's the position I'm hiring for. And they would go through the resumes and they would do a phone screen, which is just like three or four questions. And then they would put those people on my schedule. So I knew at least they had the basics of what we needed and it was basically a blind interview for me and i didn't want to have extra information and tarnish my opinion of that person i just wanted to meet them and 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 feel what type of an employee they would be and it you know i did see their resume once we sat down and i would take a minute and like fill out the paperwork look at their resume do all that and make them feel really uncomfortable yeah. in the silence <laughs> you can learn a lot about someone just by being silent for two minutes with them and you'd be shocked just because someone had an impressive resume whatever that might mean it didn't mean that they were going to be the person i hired it was more about the energy that they had and how much that seemed like they wanted the job. If it felt like they just were going to take this job for a month and look for something else, that didn't interest me. I wanted someone who wanted to learn. I wanted someone who wanted to grow. I wanted someone who I wanted someone like me who was going to come in and be like, I want to run this store someday and I want to work for you because you can show me how to do that. I'd be like, great. Do you want a full-time job? I know you were looking for like an occasional seasonal job, but like I could give you this full-time job that I have instead, you know? I, so <laughs> how do you, like as the person sitting across from you, how do you communicate that? You just say it. Like, I think it's, it's, it's so easy. Like, you know, someone typically I was starting to be like, Oh, so like, tell me about yourself. And that's your, chance to like talk about who you really are not what's on your resume i already have that in front of me but what do you love to do like oh you you're applying for a job at best buy so you hopefully you like computers and technology so tell me that you love playing world of warcraft and you're a dungeons and dragons fan and you always are at best buy at midnight when we have midnight releases and you've been wanting to work here since you shop on Black Friday every year and you used to spend the night outside the store and you just couldn't wait to get in and you're always here on Tuesdays when new movies come out. And like, like I would work here for free if I could. Like, I would work here for free if you'd let. Like, I just really want to work here. And if you talk like that, it doesn't matter. And we keep talking in Best Buy lingo, but it doesn't matter what the job is. If you said that and you were trying to become a programmer at Disney+, Plus and you were in the interview room with the person, you'd say, you know, we use this product every single day. You, I'm so grateful for Disney+. Plus. You're helping me raise my children. You're giving me this great content to bring them up on. I don't know how I would parent without your product. And I am really good at computer programming, but I want to bring that to you guys because I love what you do. You're going to get that job, guaranteed. The 
Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that, and we're going to jump around a lot here. The One of the things about your past that was interesting that you said is you were a computer programmer when you were growing up. And I've heard that in yeah. your interview with uh, Hannah as well that you did with Hannah. What, like, what made you do that? I mean, what, how, how did you, and why did you? When I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, my dad started bringing home computers, and we were early adopters to technology. So we had, you know, internet and DSL and dial-up and all that long before it became popular improved and so i was coding in basic in dos and making these little games in dos and then windows came and and these dates could be completely wrong i don't even know if i was doing them in the order that things actually came out i can just tell you the order i did it i started programming in basic and then my uncle gave me a cd with visual basic from microsoft so then i started making programs in that and it was always like to solve some kind of a need and like prove that I could do it. So like my mom had a small business and then my dad worked for a company um, as a salesman and an engineer. And so I'd be like watching them and trying to figure out what they were doing and then like try to make a program to help them make their job easier. Um, and so I did that. And then I really got into, and this might've been middle school or early high school. I really got into internet relay chat and I was programming these bots for gamers on Internet Relay Chat and uh, to help. I, I was, <laughs> this is, I don't think I've said most of this publicly before, but I was like a semi professional Counter Strike player. Really? And I was creating these bots in a channel for, to help. This was long before Steam or any of that, to help with matchmaking because video games were horrible at matchmaking at that point. So I made this channel and made this bot that would help moderate it to help teams find other teams to fight and to practice Counter-Strike against. And then I also did the same thing with teams that needed like a fifth person to join them for a match, like to help them. And I created bots to do all of that. And then I started working at the clothing store and never programmed again. (laughs) (laughs) The, but I, I, <laughs> I with uh, Counter Strike, were you always? Were you? Did you ever do the like internet cafe uh, stuff where they would go and have like land land tournaments there? No, never. I think I was a little young. Okay. I think I was. So I, because I was born in '87, and so I was ahead of the curve. As in, I was doing it really young, but I was so young that like like you know. I would be programming. I think I told Hannah this when we were recording, and it's bringing up so many memories. It's hilarious. I remember being in class, ignoring the teacher, because I was always just never cared about class. This was in middle school slash high school, and writing computer code on paper with no computer in front of me. And then I would go home and like type that in and test it. And my parents, because I loved being on the computer so much, that was the ultimate punishment. If I did something wrong, it was just to take away my computer. So there was months and months and months. It, in my head as a kid, I swear it was years of being grounded from the computer. I'm sure it was just months, but it really kind of put me behind on kind of staying up with that, especially if you're running bots and they were running on my computer. 
and then like you're grounded and your computer's off and now there's like thousands of people relying on this and it's just gone right <laughs> so it, it wasn't great <laughs> do you still do you still play video games to this day i don't um not anymore the last game that i played was final fantasy 11 online which is sort of like world of warcraft i would say at at least when i played it it was a little more complicated like things that in world of warcraft would take four in this game it would take like 12 like it was like a major time suck but there was also a programming component in that game and so i was programming automations for my characters to change gear to the best gear for whatever was happening and it was all like coding language to do that so that was like the last thing that i coded except for like websites and things like that that i still do today right right oh that's that's awesome yeah um video games is a huge part of my past as well i i don't i don't really have the time to play anymore i wish i did but uh but yeah definitely you said so for me i have the time to play i have a lot of free time the issue is i don't want to allocate that free time to that i want to allocate it to being outside and walking, playing tennis, learning new things, reading books, cooking, resting, sleeping, all these other things I want to do. And so I know that if I enter, I can't do it a little bit. If I play a video game, I have to be the best in the world at it. And I have been the best in the world at many, many of these games. And like just when we were on vacation two weeks ago, they had a, uh, an Xbox in the Airbnb. Day one, I turn it on. I'm like, oh, what's on this Xbox? Oh, there's this UFC game. I'm like, huh, this sounds fun. I I played for the next two days, the first two days of our vacation, and went 24-0 and in this UFC game and became like the greatest of all time in the game. And then I was like, I need to stop. Like, what am I doing here? Because I can't quit. So if you can't do it, the best, like I'm like, well, I might as well not do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty similar. I, I don't have, um, I'm not very good at moderation. I just don't, I don't understand what those, what that word means. And so I just find that it's uh, best to just abstain from things that uh, would just be a huge time suck otherwise. I've been having the urge actually though to, to um, get back onto that Final Fantasy server just to see what's been going on and my computer can't do it. So I've been looking on Facebook marketplace for like cheap PCs and cause it's like a PC game. I'm like, I should not do this. I know better. I should not do this, but I've been feeling the temptation lately. Um, but really it's just, for me, it's about priorities. And when I sat down a few years ago and I wrote 20 year goals down on paper and I was like, James, what do you want your life to look like in 20 years in these seven different categories? video gaming wasn't in there at all. And so I have to take the time that I do have and choose to use it wisely on other things. And it's the same reason I don't have a TV in this house. We don't even have a TV. Because, not because I don't like Netflix, I've watched more shows than probably most people have. Like I, I'm an addict, but that's why I don't have a TV because I know I would have no self-control. And so if we wanna watch a Netflix show, which we do once in a while, I have to watch it on this computer monitor in uncomfortable chairs in the office. And so I'm not going to do it for a very long stretches of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was, when you wrote down all those goals, what, what were those categories? If you don't mind, if you don't mind uh, sharing. 
yeah, so the categories, there's seven of them. And I tried to make one or two goals in each. And the I got this originally from Zig Ziglar. And I kind of changed it to fit my needs. And the buckets were your mind, so like your intellectual stimulus, your body, so that could mean your health and fitness and things like that, and your spirit. So for some people, that's um, their faith. For other people, it's meditation and breath work and things like that. So you put goals down in all those three categories. And then you've got your family is a bucket. Your friends slash community is a bucket. Then you have career. And the final one is finances. And I just set goals in all seven buckets. And we kind of created this framework. I call it the family board meeting. And we just meet once a quarter, Emily and I, my wife, and we go through the yearly goals and we set kind of goals for the next 90 days in those, each of those seven buckets in order to reach this 20-year goal. And we put them on our calendar. Very, very small usually. It's like if you want to donate a million dollars to charity in the next 20 years, well, you don't start out with donating 100. Like you put on your calendar that this Sunday, we're going to call it Giving Sunday. We're going to sit down on, with a cup of coffee and we're going to give away $1,000 and we got to pick what charities we're going to give it to. And you start that way. And that you keep doing that quarter after quarter, month after month, year after year. And before long, you're going to crush your 20-year goals probably before 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. How, how long are these family board meetings that you have? Like once a quarter for how it, long? It depends on our needs. Sometimes they're five minutes and it's just like, we already know what we're kind of going after. Um, and just for example, we just did one and it was like a start, stop, continue it, because we've, we're kind of really dialed in on this. So we were like, okay, what do we want to continue doing? What have we been doing an amazing job over the last quarter that we want to make sure doesn't fall off over this next quarter? Let's make sure we put that on the calendar. And like, for example, in the last quarter, we've been doing a really good job in our friends bucket. Our goal was to have like a, a, a dinner party once a month. And we've been having like two a month. And we're like, this is really great. It's really filling us up. It's doing everything that we wanted. Let's make sure we continue to do that this next quarter. Because for us, it's so easy to be like, great, friends is on lock. I really want to get in better shape this quarter. And then you end the quarter and you're in better shape, but you hadn't done one friend thing. And so I start with like, what are we doing well and what we need to maintain that and not lose track on it. And so that's what we do first. And then we're like, okay, what if we like sucked it up big time in the last quarter? What have we not done at all? And we write that down. Um, and then we kind of, um, we'd like, right, what do we need to like just add in? Like what's some extra flair that we can add into this? And sometimes, like I said, it can take five minutes. It's usually at the beginning of the year, sort of like when people are doing New Year's resolutions, we're doing an offsite, much bigger planning session for the year where we look at our 20-year goals, we look at our calendar, and we start filling it in with things we want to do that year before work and other things and other people's priorities fills our calendar up. We're already, like, we already had our vacations planned out for the entire year, the first week of January. So when a client's like, hey, can you come and do this and that on this day? We go, oh, no, sorry, we already blocked that off. Instead of at the end of the, like, instead of the reverse is like, oh, we need to get a vacation in here, but work and everything else has already filled up my whole calendar. There's no more slots left. Well, 
maybe we can take a long weekend here. Like to me, that's unacceptable. Like there's the mentality of pay yourself first. And that's exactly what this is. Like schedule your life first and then let everything else kind of come in and fill it out. So those first ones of the year are generally longer. And I always recommend to do them off site and at least a long weekend. And the reason for that is if you, it's really hard to disconnect, first of all. Like, you, so we go kind of into the mountains where there's no cell phone service and we just hang out for a day or two. And then we were like, all right, it's time for our board meeting. Like we've had sort of a dopamine detox. Our focus is working. We're feeling really creative. We're feeling rested. We've had good food, good walks, good time together. And we're like, let's plan out this year. What's it going to look like? Like at the end of the year, what do we want to achieve and how do we want to be feeling? And it's very uh, creative and dreaming. And it's not, there's nothing, there's zero conversation here of how do we do it? We do not have any of that. At this stage, it's what do we want to look like in a year? What do we want to be feeling? Who do we want to be with? What do we want to be doing? What do we want to achieve? And we write all that down. And then it's like, all right, cool. How do we work and how do we work backwards and achieve it? Yeah, I love the the scheduling, like you said, paying yourself, kind of quote unquote, paying yourself first. What Hannah and I do something very similar um, in that we find that if we don't make ourselves a priority, nobody else is right. I mean, people are going to take your time whenever they can, whenever they can get it. And so you have to make yourself mm-hmm. a priority. And one of the things that we hear whenever we tell this to other people is they say, well, that's easy for, for you because you set your own schedule or that's easy for you because you have a set schedule or, you know, insert this, you know, reason, excuse, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's important to know that you can do that. Even if you do work shift work where you're, Say you work at Best Buy or say you work in the restaurant and maybe your schedule is changing every week. Maybe you get your schedule on Thursday for next Sunday and you can kind of take, say, okay, well, maybe we want to do a vacation this quarter or maybe you don't have the money to take a vacation, but maybe it's a staycation or you kind of take like a week of time, say we're going to shoot within the first week of June to the second week of June. We're going to take one day where we just go completely off grid and we just go walk around the town. I mean, it could be as simple as that. And that's that's one of the things that we hear a lot of people is easy for you to say, easy for you to say. Like, I understand that and I get that. And I my kind of pushback was I worked at Best Buy. I was one of two managers in the store and I still got every one of my vacation hours used every single year. And it was because I did the same thing. I was proactive about it. And sometimes you may be working with a boss or coworkers who don't use their time. And so if you're off gallivanting going on vacation, it's almost like, well, you're an underachiever, like you're underproductive. And so then you feel guilty to take your time. That happened to me. I was I came from one Best Buy building to another. And I was used to getting all my time and using every hour. Like, why wouldn't you? I mean, you get like, you know, three weeks. Like, that's like nothing. And so you have to use it all. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to be the underachiever because I'm a high achieving person. So instead, I'm going to encourage these other people around me to take their time. 
And so I sat down with each of my peers and my boss, and I'm like, let's map out your year. When are you going to take your trip? You work so hard. Like, you really need some time off. Like, you deserve it. I'm, I'm totally, like, just making try, trying to make sure I get my time, but in a way that is also helping this person. And so my peers were also getting their time and taking their trips, and I helped them plan them. I'm like, you know what? You're always talking about how I'm at the time I took a lot of cruises, and uh, you want me to help you plan one? And I'd get on, and I'd show them the prices, to look at flights. I'd be like, it's not that expensive. You can afford it, like, blah, 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 and I would help them map it out too. And so... I would then fill in the blank spots there because they all had their time. I no longer felt guilty about getting all of my time. And you can get super creative with vacation. So if you get three weeks off, that's you know five, five, and five. But typically, most people don't work weekends. And let's say you don't work weekends. So you get your Saturday. Most people, if you do work weekends, which I did when I was in retail, you still get two days off each week usually. So you just pile all that together. So I would take Saturday and Sunday as my normal day off, five days off for my vacation time, and then Saturday, Sunday off again for my normal days off, and then Monday, Tuesday as my normal t- days off. And so a five-day amount of time off ends up becoming, what's that? That's like 11 yep. days? Yeah. 11 days off with only spending five. And granted, before my vacation and after my vacation, the weeks were really long. Like I had to earn that time off, but I only spent five days to get 11 days off, and I did that every time. So I only got three weeks off of vacation, but it ended up being 33 days off each year, and I spread it out. And it was three vacations a year for 11 days each, and I took a cruise almost every single time. And it was great, and it just took being proactive and scheduling it and overcoming the uh, barriers and the objections, the same things that it takes to be successful in anything, you just have to want it bad enough. Yeah, definitely. And you apply that a lot of places. One of the things, kind of switching gears, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was we share this activity in common podcasting. And... I went back and in preparation for this, I went back and I listened to some of your earlier stuff. And I, and from what I understand, I think you just started it last year. Your podcast is great. I mean, you, you are a fantastic, fantastic host and uh, a fantastic interviewer. How did you? Thank you. Is that a question? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> how did you do that? As somebody that's, as somebody that's, you know, starting out on the interviewing side, you know, our podcast normally right now is we have topics that we need to cover. And so Hannah and I come up and we heavily outline or we script, uh, not script outline. We heavily outline an episode and we want to get this information out to the people that listen to us. And as I'm coming into interviewing, it's a completely different skill set. And um, so I went back and I listened to your, you've improved so much, but you also started at the, you started pretty well. And I guess, did you feel like that when you started off, when you, when you started out and how did you improve so well or so much? It, it felt not that great when I started. Um, 
and I think I just set really high standards and I don't even know, I didn't have like a framework. I didn't even really know what I was going to be talking about. I think my, my gift in podcasting is that I, we, I, I, I read widely and I have a lot of interests so I can go down pretty much any rabbit hole that someone brings up and I am very careful when I'm doing research to not do too much research and I usually have like five or six bullets just single word or two words written down on a piece of paper like this and I don't know why my video is so dark um, and that's all I'll have going into the conversation and I'm completely willing to shred that in the first 30 seconds if something more interesting than I planned on comes up and I'll just stick on that for the entire segment. I remember recently I had Robin Altucher on the podcast and that was such, such a fun episode. And it was like a 90 minute or two hour long episode. And my goal was to talk to her about friendships. And we talk about friendships a lot on my podcast because I think we all need more friends and we need to um, be better friends. And so we're talking about friendships, talking about friendships, and it was good. It was valuable. She had a lot of fantastic information, but she mentioned her kids a couple times. And then I started asking a few questions about her kids. And then there was like a switch in the room. Her face demeanor changed, the way her voice sounded changed, her nervousness went away. We just talked about parenting. All that evaporated. And I'm like, this is my topic. And we just went into parenting. And I had no script, I had no research, I had no plan. But I had a person in front of me that was passionate about a topic and all I had to do was kind of continue to nudge it where I wanted it to go, um, but really just let her her do that. And I had another podcast very similar, um, Joe DiStefano. He has a, a, a retreat called Runga, which is really cool. And we were talking, my plan, I had like kettlebells, how to get strong, all this stuff written down. We ended up not talking about strength and fitness at all. And that's like his thing. But he mentioned his, his, his son. I think his son's name's Levi. And I was like, oh, like, how are you raising your kid? Like, I'm really curious. And we ended up doing the entire podcast about parenting. And that was, he hadn't talked about that a lot. I hadn't talked about that a lot. Wasn't what we, either of us were expecting, but we were both interested in it at the time. And so basically, here's my whole plan. My goal is in the first three or four minutes of our conversation, and it usually happens even before I hit record, I find a thread that we're both interested in together at the same time right now, and then we just go full steam into that. And if something else pops up, I, I mean, I have ADD, so I, I can't help myself but follow that rabbit down that next trail. And it kind of makes it means that we jump around a lot. And it sometimes means, because I, I will take notes on my paper of like things that come up while they're talking that are like new branches I could dive down into. So if you mentioned to me parenting, but you're talking about school, I write that down. I'm like, okay, maybe there's a chance we can slip into that later. And a lot of times by the time I'm done with an interview, I've got an entire page of other trails we can go down and I'm like if I bring this person back I already have a whole list of things we could talk about and um, so I guess you, you, another final thought on that and then you can ask me any questions about podcasting is you have these soft skills already because you worked in the restaurant industry you know how to talk to people 
peop, you probably were one of those people that people were sharing things with you. They should not be sharing with a complete stranger. They just trusted you. They're waiting for their friend to show up and they're telling you something about their day and their work or their date or their parents that like, why are they telling me? They don't even know me. You already have that gift. The idea is to lean into that and trust that you'll be able to handle the conversation wherever it leads and be nurturing in, in the safe environment to let that happen and don't try to, at least this is what I do, don't try to push it back into what you had planned and what you outlined before. Be willing to completely throw that script out the window and go on the journey with them. And that's how real conversations are anyway. And it's funny, as, and it's funny that you say that um, because already I realize that from this, I have a lot of, I did a lot of prep for this. Oh, wow. <laughs> you should send me that. I want to know more about myself. I did, a, I did a lot of prep for this. And I realized already with the time restraints uh, that we, time constraints that we have, that I was like, we're not going to get to half of this. And, uh, but it's fine. It's perfect. Um, because we get go have a actual conversation. And one of the things I didn't want to mention exactly what you said. And I noticed at your podcast is that you are very, very good at just letting it go. Just, just completely. I've heard on a couple, I have a very general memory, so I can't think of exactly the episodes, but you would ask questions and the, you know, your interviewee, the person that you're interviewing wouldn't really totally answer it, but that's all right. And it would just to go down a completely different, it would totally branch and you guys would just have a conversation. And I was just like, this is awesome. And then you would just ask a follow-up question about the branch that you're already on. Uh, so yeah, uh, as, as somebody that's trying to develop their skills in this, you know, uh, thank you for the free five minute consultation that we just had. <laughs> Yeah, I'll bail you yeah, later. Right. No, I think that you, I really want to just restate what I said before, that you already have this gift. I think it's having faith that it's going to work. And I struggle with that. I'm almost 50 episodes into my show, and they're all 90 minutes long. And most of the guests I don't know. It's the first time I've talked to them. So I'm always very intimidated. Like, am I going to like run out of things to say? And it has not happened yet. And so I have enough down where I'm like, okay, if there's like, if it's basically just like ask a question, get an answer, and there's nothing else, I'll at least have maybe 15 minutes of content. <laughs> um, and it, I've never needed it. Like I've never needed my prep work. It, I've always just really leaned into the, the natural conversation that's happening. And so I just kind of own that. I'm like, hey, when you listen to my show, it's like eavesdropping on two friends discussing the secrets of their success because that's just really what it is. It's like completely unguided and unscripted. And um, you just have to have faith. I think, you, I think you have the gift. You just have to practice it. And um, I think at, at, from this interview, I'm, I'm having a great time. So I think you're doing a great job. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, you mentioned something and about books, about reading. And from what I understand, you read pretty prolifically. How do you do that? I mean, do you schedule time every day to read? Do you put books all over your house or like? I'm horrible at scheduling things. 
So I, whenever I do schedule something, I want to do something else in that time. I just like can never find a way to schedule what I want to do and then like be wanting to do that that exact time. So unfortunately, I'm not as productive as I could be because of that. So I have to set myself up for success in other ways. And you nail it on the head. Like I sprawl books everywhere. Uh, they're always within reach and I'm always reading like four or five. And so if one of the ones that I pick up is not interesting to me right now, I just go to the other one because I can't read a book that isn't interesting to me. My ADD is so bad, I shouldn't even be able to read. And so I have to be in the mood to read that book at that time. And I haven't read in like a week or two very much. And for some reason, not a single book I was picking up off my bookshelf was interesting to me. I don't know. It was just a problem. I'm like, I might be in the mood for fiction. And that's typically when I'm like, I just need to get into a good book, a fiction book. And a friend of mine a few months ago suggested I read The Hobbit. And I haven't read it. I've never read any of The Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to read this. And so I picked up The Hobbit on Friday evening. And by Saturday afternoon, it was already done. And now we're recording this, I think it's Tuesday. And I'm halfway through the next book in that series because it's the right book at the right time for what I need right now. And I always have it within reach. So if I go to the pool, I'm going to take it with me. If I'm going to go in the car, it's going to be with me. When I wake up, it's going to be on my nightstand. When I go into the living room, I'm going to take it with me into the living room. And so if I do feel like reading for five minutes, 10 minutes, I do. And I sort of apply the... Um, the uh, it, it's kind of James Clear, Atomic Habits, and B.J. Fogg, Tiny Habits, very similar. And it's the, well, I'll just read a page. And one page ends up being 45 minutes sometimes. And, you know, you're, you just read however many pages that is. And so I wouldn't say I read a ton in any one spurt at a time, but I read frequently enough throughout the day and... I'm reading what I'm interested in. So the time just kind of flies. Would you consider yourself like a fast reader or no, no, my wife reads significantly faster than me. Like if we, if we're both reading, she flies through a book in the same amount of time. I go back like and reread things so many times and to like, let it sink in. And I take a lot of notes I always have a, a retractable pencil like this with me and I'm circling things, underlining things, folding over pages, writing questions in the margins as I'm going. And so I'm kind of a slow reader. I just am a passionate reader and I know when a book isn't speaking to me and I'm not afraid to lay it back down or put it back on my shelf, sometimes for years. There's some books on my bookshelf back here. I started, read 10 pages and I'm like, nope, not the season for me right now maybe in another season, and I move on. And a, a, a lot of times what I use as clues for what I want, I, like what I should be reading is a real need that I have to excel in one of those seven buckets I mentioned. So if I'm realizing that I'm struggling in fitness and I'm feeling kind of guilty about it because I'm an achiever and I'm competitive, well, that might be a great time for me to read a fitness book because it's exactly something I'm wanting right then. And so I'm going to want to devour it to improve versus I don't like to read things in areas that I'm already really good at. Like 
I don't read very many books on sales or business anymore because they all sound the same now. Like it's not what I'm trying to improve right now. It's not really giving me anything new or it's not really kind of piquing my curiosity in any way. And as a kid, no one have ever thought I would be a reader. I hadn't, I didn't read a single bit book through middle school or high school. Um, I think Harry Potter was like the, one of the first ones or the Hardy boys or something like that. But I didn't read any of the school assignments. I didn't read any of my homework. I never did any homework in school. Like it, I had to really find things I was interested in and that's what I'll read. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's crazy to not, to go from reading zero for basically eight years to reading 50 a year. That's crazy. Is it, is it just a hunger for knowledge? Is it just that intellectual curiosity that just kind of spurs you to do it? Or I mean, are you trying? It's that for sure. It's that. And I keep buying books. Like I just, if I hear of one that sounds interesting, I just order it immediately. I, and when I wasn't making very much money, when I quit my job at Best Buy, like that was just putting books on hold as a library. Like I didn't have money to go. And still today I buy used books. Like if, if the book is on Amazon, I have like this whole algorithm. It's like, I go on Amazon, if it's available used and it's like 20% less than it is new, I just buy it used. If they're less than that, I just buy it new so it gets here a little bit quicker. But before that, I was just borrowing them from the library. And and then there's like no skin in the game. If you don't like the book, just drop it back in the bin. I think so many people quit reading because they were forced to or encouraged to read a book that they didn't like and they were afraid to just give the book back and say, hey, this book isn't for me or to just get rid of the book. Like just because you bought a book and you read five pages doesn't mean you need to spend the next 10 years of your life going through it. Like throw it away, give it away, take it to that thrift store we mentioned earlier. Like just do something with it and get something you'll like and I guarantee you'll read more books. And uh, I think that's really the secret is don't be afraid to just, give up on a book and, and maybe not forever, maybe just for this season that you're in right now. Yeah. I think that's really important. And that's something that I can learn from as well, because for me, I don't read as many books. I probably read 10 books a year on average, maybe 20 is a good year. 20 is a good year. And when you're reading that few of books, it's kind of a high leverage. It's kind of a high leverage thing. Like, okay, well, if I only read 10 books a year, now I have this one book here. I started it. I'm kind of halfway through it. I'm not really enjoying it. But, I've, but you know, some cost. Like, I'm already halfway in. Like, I might as well just finish it. And it's something that I, that I struggle with because I'll get in the middle of a book and I'm just like, this thing is just, it's just not right for me at the time. It may, may, I don't want to say it's trash, but it's just not right for me at the time. No, there's a lot of, you can say it's <laughs> trash though. Like, that's another myth. Like just because someone put it for sale on Amazon and just because it has a thousand five-star reviews, it could be trash to, to you, me, yes. right? And, and it could be trash to everyone and it could just be a popular book. Like there's a lot of books out there that are not good. They're poorly written. They shouldn't have been written and someone just wanted a business card. And when you discover those books, like, and if you don't want to read it, like, don't read it. Like, just because you started it doesn't mean you have to read it. And just because your best friend said, hey, I really think you'd like this book. If they're wrong, like, just do it in a polite way. But just, like, don't read it. <laughs> like, 
there is so many books out there. And a good friend of mine who reads even more than me, I think he books reads like a book a day. Um, he he had this idea, and he's like, I may only have like two or three thousand more books left in me to read in my entire life. So, if just because someone mails me the book doesn't mean that's going to be the one that makes it on my pile, and I may actually go back and reread a lot of books for those two or three thousand books because I already found ones that are great, and so I think I think there's like this idea in culture like just because a book's popular everyone needs to read it and i like to find the books that nobody's reading that maybe people have forgotten about maybe from prior generations that may have way more wisdom than the pop culture book today because you said you read well you you said it was strange that i didn't read for eight and now i'm reading every day but actually more that you're right because the statistics show that after high school slash college most people don't read any books ever again and i think it's just because they they didn't follow their own passions and we have too many recommendations from these gurus about books that helped them but they may not help you so if you like chess buy a book on chess if you like airplanes buy a book on airplanes and enjoy yourself yeah yeah definitely definitely with um you know with chess i understand you're playing now again i guess before you've you've taken a decades long hiatus from chess and now you're starting to get back into it like what's the goal are you trying to be competitive or are you just trying to learn more and just trying to improve i my friend Corey taught me to play chess i think it, i was probably 10 years old and he taught me though how to the pieces moved and that was it. I had never played again since then. And then a few years ago, uh, I started playing on Lee chess and like got addicted. Like it was like my new video game and started playing dozens of games every single day. I've since played thousands of games and I hired a coach, multiple coaches and, started getting books and taking classes, going to chess tournaments and doing all of that and realized it's a, it's a difficult game. Like this isn't, it was one of the first things that I had embarked upon that I couldn't become relatively good in like a mediocre amount of time. Like usually if you can become decent at a lot of things in a couple months of, you know, full-time dedication, chess is not that way. I was realizing no matter how much time I spent learning to play it, it was still not going to be enough for me to get to an expert or a master level. And so right now I'm just kind of playing for fun. I don't have a coach. I haven't been going to tournaments. I'm in sort of a hiatus. And it's only because I'm learning something else that takes significantly more time. Like it's the most, it's even more complicated than chess, if I would be able to say that. And so I do have plans to get back into chess and to continue to get better. But uh, they're kind of on hold for now. And But it, it will happen again because I love playing it. It's such a beautiful game. What, what has been taking your time? What have you been learning? I am getting a pilot's license. Right right on. And so twice a week, I it's actually taking two full days um, every week, which is a huge time commitment. And I'm, I am obviously, I'm flying, it's not obvious, but... I'm learning 
to fly vintage aircraft from the 1940s. And so they're a lot different than newer planes. There's a lot more aviation to it and um, mechanical things that I have to learn and weather and navigation. And I'm learning to fly planes from ground reference maneuvers where I have a paper chart and I go from airport A to airport B 60 nautical miles away without using a GPS with just using a map and then safely land there and then come back. And it's, it's hard. Like there's all these micro skills within flying and each one of them is its own ball of wax that you have to kind of figure out how to do. So that's what I've been doing since August. And, um, it's a lot, it's exhausting. Like I flew yesterday for a couple hours and like I come home and I'm exhausted. Like I've never done anything that was this physically and mentally demanding before. How far along are you trying to take, um, flight school and being a pilot? Are you just trying to get your private or are you working up to commercial? I am just working on private now. I have no goals of generating any income from it. It's just a hobby and a goal of just localized travel, like being able to hop in a plane and and get to Nashville in four hours instead of eight hours sounds really neat. And being able to see the country from 1,800 feet, just it's beautiful there. And being able to travel our country on the East Coast here by doing that would be really, really neat. I probably will get my commercial also at some point because I have a business and I can think of many ways that a commercial pilot license could be useful for my business endeavors. But I have no interest of... Um, flying for hire or for pay i do have interest in doing like emergency flying like if someone has a pet that needs to get somewhere or a person that needs to get somewhere or some supplies that need to get somewhere for uh, for certain reasons i would love to volunteer and do that sort of stuff um but definitely have no interest in being like a delta pilot or Mm -hmm. something is it all is it fixed wing that you're you're going to stick with fixed wing or are you going to do helicopters too no, I don't. I don't think I could afford helicopters. That's a. I think I'd have to be like twenty years old and join the military if I ever wanted to be a helicopter pilot. Yeah, it's, well, especially if you're trying to be um, competitive. I so I used to be an accountant at a flight school in a different life, and um, so and they, we did fixed wing and we did rotary as well. So it was. I know exactly how much it costs, at least in the area that I was at. And you're absolutely right. It is it is crazy expensive. It has to be hundreds of thousands. It's of crazy. Dollars for it's crazy expensive, that. especially if you're trying to get up to CFI. Um, it's to go the civilian route is really really tough to be competitive in the exactly what you said of uh, the commercial market or trying to get paid for it. You the only real way without spending an arm and a leg is to join the military and right. Your economics go the other way. Instead of you spending money <laughs> to get your flight hours, you're, you're getting paid. Um, to, to accumulate basically it. all the helicopter pilots I've met were ex military so far. And it makes sense. And, um, it's just, I mean, you know, the, the helicopters are millions of dollars the planes I fly are thirty to forty thousand dollars. Like, so renting one is a couple hundred or a few hundred dollars an hour versus thousands of dollars an hour. And so it it 
and you have to train a lot. Like if you actually want to do this and you want to do it properly, like so many people, and this would, this is a whole theological debate. It's not really necessary, but I'll just go quick on it. So many people are just going through flight school to get in like a Delta cockpit. And so they want to do it as fast as possible. And then they'll get their flight experience in the Delta cockpit. Um, I want to graduate and be able to take my wife and our future children on small trips in a small airplane. I want to do it and be 100% confident that I can safely get them there and get us back every single time. And so I'm putting in hundreds and hundreds of repetitions in many different parts, including emergency procedures and flying in wind and, and so and, and, and flying without vision and, and so many other things. So I can feel confident to take my loved ones up in the air. And um, so it's, it's, it's a big time commitment, but it's fun. It's, it's challenging. Yeah. Eight hours a day for uh, two days a week. That is, that's a lot of time. That is a lot of time. And it's not all flying. It's a, it's Ground a lot of too. driving to the airport. Um, you know, it's like an hour, hour and a half away. It's it's but it's it's basically just it is eight hours of time start to finish twice a week and it and I come home exhausted so I can't just like come home and do normal work like it basically is taking away two full productive days for me so it it's a lot and there's been many times throughout this I'm like is this worth it like I'm giving up so much to do this is it worth it and uh, I'll let you yeah, know yeah exactly. I guess. <laughs> Uh, you must be close <laughs> to your check ride, though, right? I mean, you uh, you started in August last year, tw- twice a week. Yeah, so I'm very close. I uh, probably w- I've been doing a lot of travel, but most likely in the next sixty days I'll be. Oh, finished. awesome! Good luck. Thank yeah. you. I did pass my written test, so I have the knowledge, the applicable knowledge, according to the FAA. Um, so now I just have my check ride. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's and that's what we've been doing. We've been doing um, simulated check rides where I'm doing the maneuvers over and over, you know, over and over again. So right, right, yeah, that's always something that I wanted to do. It's still on the it's still on the bucket list uh, to to fly. For me, I I want to fly rotary though. I, I'd rather fly helicopters. Um, and for what you just said, it's really expensive. I have a friend right now that's going through uh, flight school the civilian way and yes it is the amount of money that he's burning through is uh it's pretty amazing it's astonishing (laughs) i'm just like i was like do you the good thing for him is he actually has a goal of that he wants to do it in a commercial capacity and get paid for it but he's a firefighter and he's also a cop already he's a he's both and so he kind of has an in if he gets if he gets his commercial so for him it kind of makes sense economically for me it's yeah it's an investment for him it's and if you look at the cost of going through flight school to keep it more on the the par with this podcast if you look at the cost of what it would take to go and do that and then you look at the jobs that are opened up to you from doing that like the math works very quickly like you're going to make in your first year and you know the numbers better than me but i think you'll make in your first year as a pilot a full-time commercial pilot or maybe first two years for sure what you spent to go and get that is that true yeah definitely i mean it depends on it depends on where you obviously it depends on where you you've gone 
to get your your license. Where I was, I was in California, and it was much more expensive on average just because of where we were. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but generally speaking, you're absolutely right. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's something. It's one of those things that if you take the if you take the time, just kind of like anything else, if you the younger you do it, the more you're gonna get on the upside of it there. So it's difficult to do the math when you start to get a little bit older. Not I mean unfortunately that's just a kind of a fact. Right. If you Definitely. And there's actually such a need for pilots right now that there's gotta be creative ways to get this paid for right now because so many people have retired in the last two years in this field and there is not enough people to fill these planes and it's going to become a massive problem. So if flying is interesting to you, there's, there's gotta be creative ways to get it funded and to get into a cockpit. And, um, for me, the way I figured out if I wanted to do it was just, you know, paid for one small 45 minute tour around the town. And that was in 2017. And I was like, all right, this is pretty awesome. And so I started saving. And then in 2021, in the summer, I took my wife up. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do this. If she doesn't love it or feel safe with it too, then I'm done with it. Like, it doesn't make any sense for me to take the time and have this if she can't join me. And so she went up and she's like, okay, this feels great. It feels safe. Like, if it was fun. Like, it was beautiful up there. I'm like, all right, I'm all in. And then I went all in. <laughs> That's awesome. And to kind of switch gears here, one of the things I did want to talk to you about was your your agency Craven Street Marketing Group, and so if you could just I have a couple of questions about it, but if you can kind of just explain what it is that you do now with your career. Yeah, so I have uh, an agency called Craven Street Marketing Group, and we basically help natural products brands sell more of their amazing products on Amazon, and we do that many, many ways, but basically we take complete control of your account and do everything we can to help you sell more. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore because most of the brands that we work with are a little bit smaller and they have so many things that they can be doing and not messing with Amazon. So what are, what are the keys to making millions on Amazon? I mean, what are the keys to marketing natural food products or marketing in general? It's really not as complicated as you would think. And there's no shortcuts, though. Um, you got to have a product that's unique that you actually love. I mean, I think that seems to be the thread running through everything we're talking about. Like, you can't just look on Alibaba. I mean, you can people do this all the time but if you want to be successful for a long time you can't do it i don't think you you have to have a product that solves a real problem that you have and then you can't find it anywhere and it's driving you absolutely mad and nobody's making it so you say well i guess if no one's making it i'll do it because i need this and i know if i need it there's going to be other people out there And so then they do it and they figure it out. And they're usually just like a single person company and they're like scratching and clawing, trying to figure this out and teach themselves that. And then they've got this really cool product that nobody else has that other people are looking for. And then that's where 
we come in and help to put systems and processes in place, organization and Amazon best practices onto your Amazon store. And we manage that so you don't run out of inventory. We write your copy so it sounds great on Amazon. We manage your advertising. We manage the customer experience. We do all of that so you can just continue to come up with more formulations and be out selling your product and not worrying about Amazon because it's complicated. And when you've got a, a, a in America, there's over 150 million Prime members. So they're there. If your product isn't on Amazon, you're missing out. And so you have to be there, but it, it takes all this energy to be there. And so we that's our problem that we solve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. For a lot of people listening to this, they kind of don't know much about marketing. They don't know much about you know, how to sell anything. They never sold anything before. I know that you have your background from retail, so you can pull on a lot of that knowledge. But for people just starting, you know, they're maybe they they want to sell a little gadget or you know widget that they've made. What's a good basic starting point for learning how to market? How you know how to make somebody buy something from you? I think you have to start with actually selling it. I mean, this is my bias in, you have to start by selling it in the real world to real people. And there's a ton of clever ways to do that. When we first moved to the town we're in now and we didn't have jobs, we actually started a little booth at the farmer's market and we were selling healthy baked goods, kombucha, watermelon juice, vegetable juice, all this random stuff. Because I'd been in retail so long, I was like, well, let's just make a product and go sell it directly to people. And you actually hear what they like, what they don't like. You hear what words they use to describe the needs that you have, that they have. And like I said, when I was describing my company, and it's like, you don't have time to manage your Amazon account. You're too busy. Like Every client that has hired us has basically said, oh, thank you so much. I didn't have time to do this right. So you just use that language and you learn that by interacting with real people, having them sample your product or use your product in front of you and and show you what's good about it or what's not good about it. And then you can take all of that and start trying to mimic and do that online because that's where the scale is, right? You start with something you can sell in person and then you find a way to sell it online. So many people skip the in-person step and that's okay. Like that you can... You can completely skip that and you can just send your products to people, have them record videos about what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it, or have them do surveys or get on calls like this and interview them. But I'm a in-person kind of person because they're not going to, most, most products, they're not going to be using it online. They're using it in the three dimensions. So why not interact with them in the three dimensions and then take that online and then continue to scale it. Once you've found out you can do it in the real world. The problem is, so if someone's listening to this and they have an idea, I'm like the anti-think big guy. Like I think, what can I for sure do that if it fails, I'm not going to be completely homeless, <laughs> right? Like that's where I start. And so I won't ever be Elon Musk and that's okay. I'm not going to take a big enough gamble or risk. When I watch Shark Tank and I hear these people are like, we took a $200,000 HELOC on our house and if this doesn't work, we're not going to have a house anymore. I'm like, 
that's stupid. Like, I'm sorry. Like, good for you that you did that. I hope you're successful. But there's always another way. And it's just take it a little bit slower. Do it in smaller batches. Make it yourself at first. Like, start really small. Prove that it works. And then go and do it. Um, And I think, you know, there's people that have hired us on Amazon and they've got like 5,000 units because so many of these manufacturers make you get like two, three or 5,000 units before they'll do your Mm -hmm. run. And they're like, we need your help. These things are going to expire in six months. Like, can you help us sell through them? And I'm like, no, there's no way. Like it takes longer than that to build. And so like, why didn't you order 500? Like there's like find someone who will do it in a small scale. Um, and the great thing about starting really small and when it's just you, look at Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. She was cutting the legs off of pantyhose herself and then going door to door. I mean, I could be butchering the story and selling it, right? She did it herself. She started small. She proved that it could work. And then she scaled. And um, you learn so much in that phase of entrepreneurship. And you there's no college, there's no course, there's no nothing out there that can replace that hustle and that grind and that just figuring it out phase. And it's so valuable. Yeah. The, where were you like seven years ago when I started to be an entrepreneur? The, one of the first, uh, I was at Best Buy. Like (laughs) man, if, 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 if somebody had, if I had listened to this piece of advice, uh, we wouldn't have lost as much money as we did, but we ended up doing like, it was, uh, Hannah and I, our first round of entrepreneurship that we did, we did these silly hats, uh, for St. Patrick's day. I don't want to talk too much about it, but anyway, we ended up doing, we bought way too many and it was a St. Patrick's day hat. So it's a, it's funny now. I, I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about it, to be honest. But it's a one holiday. It's not even that big of a holiday. And we bought so many. We bought about like 1,500, 1,700 units. And oh. and it was, I don't know what, we just thought. Do you still have them? I bet you still have some. We still some. have some. We still have some as a reminder to ourselves of just to see where we've been. And see how far we've come, but also don't be dumb. <laughs> like, do what you said, and and anywhere. What was crazy about that was that our profit margins were actually pretty okay because we ended up getting when we bought so many of them. So our unit, our per unit price was pretty low. <laughs> and so, so you know, we were like six x on uh, uh, is what we ended up pricing it at. So we ended up losing money, but not as much as we thought. But had we just scaled it back a little bit and, and bought 500 units or even, you know, 750 units, we probably would have made some money off of that. But it was just, uh, I, I hear what you're saying on the take it slow and don't get caught in the per unit pricing of things because, I mean, it happens. It happens. It happened to us. There was a post about how to become a billionaire and the author, and why can't I think of his name right now? doesn't really matter. 
He's seen a lot of them in his time in Silicon Valley. And his whole premise was basically that you have this group of friends and yourself that are using some technology or desiring some product that doesn't exist or you're you couldn't imagine your life without it and then you just have to know in five or ten years there's gonna be a lot more people like you then than there is right now and like for me that's obvious now like in 2016 when i left best buy and i was like i want to have control and flexibility in my life i want to be able to work from anywhere all of that that was already old news like tim ferris wrote the book in like 2008 or 2009 saying the same thing in 2016 when i did it it was still crazy and like remote work was like not a thing but now look at 2020 and 2021 now everybody wants to be remote basically and no one can imagine going back to an office so Tim said it in 2007, 2008, or maybe it was 2009. I did it in 2016 and it was early. And now in 2021, it's super popular. Like sometimes these things take 10, 15 years. But if you want it and you need it and you believe in it right now and you have some friends that do too, just give it time. And I think too many entrepreneurs, there's so many stories of someone who overnight becomes a billionaire and most of the time, those stories are not true. And most of the time, those are rare cases. Usually takes 10 or 15 years. And most people will quit before 10 or 15 years. You know how many times I've thought about quitting my podcast already? It's not even been a year. Like it, It's going to take me 10 years before I really build a brand and a personal brand. And will I quit before then? There's a chance but I know I won't be successful if I quit. And it's the same in product businesses. And it's it's really hard. I mean, how do you not quit? That's the question. That, that is the question. And um, at, like kind of at the beginning of the conversation, I think one of the things is for everybody is just figuring out your why. I mean, that really kind of what you did is figure out your figure out your goals, figure out your North Star and and I should take you back to when I quit Best Buy and I was wanting a flexible lifestyle and I just, I didn't know what I wanted exactly. I just knew I wanted something different. I read so many books on finding your identity, your purpose, your dream life, like designing your life, all this stuff. And it actually made it, it worse. Like I was more down after that. Like, all these people found their purpose and I don't know what mine is. Like it hasn't like shown up. Like why don't I have this revelation of what I should be doing? And I think it doesn't really work that way. Like it, it comes in small glimpses and it comes when you're actually out there making footsteps. Like you actually have to be in motion to discover where you need to go. It, you, it's a lot harder if you're standing still. So if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I really want more flexibility and more freedom. I want to find out what I should be doing. Like, what's my why? My encouragement to you is to start experimenting on a small scale. Not Don't go and buy a few thousand green hats. Like, start really small. Read a book on, you know, you think you want to make guitars or you want to be a woodworker 
or you want to be a beekeeper. That's like something I want to do next year. So what did I do? I went on Amazon and spent $9 and bought a beekeeping book. And I started looking at some beekeepers on Instagram and I called an apiary locally and said, Hey, is it too late to get started this year? And they're like, yeah, you got to start next year. I'm like, okay. And I just started really small with this experiment, very low risk, super high reward. And that's what you do. And you'll find some things resonate with you and some things are really exciting and keep going into those. Just like we talked about with how I like to read and just like we talked about with how I like to interview guests, like follow what excites you, what excites you, not what excites pop culture, not what excites your neighbor, not what excites your parents or your friends. Find out what you really like. And when you were a kid from nine to 12 years old, This was second nature. No one had to tell you what your favorite color was. You knew your favorite color. No one had to tell you what your favorite book was or your favorite toy or what your favorite show was or what your favorite food was. You knew all of that. It was so easy. Get back in touch with that part of you that knows when you like something and when you don't like something and start following the things you like and start walking away from the things you don't like and you'll start getting very close to your why. Uh, Amazing, amazing. And uh, we're kind of coming up on time here, James, and I don't want to take any too much more of your time. Last question is, uh, where do I send people to learn more about you, learn more about Craven Street Marketing Group, uh, the James Quandall Show? You can, um, you can look up my Instagram or my Twitter. It's just James Quandall, and my last name is Q-U-A-N-D-A-H-L, so it's at James Quandall. Or you can just go to my website, quandall.com. And I publish an episode most weeks of my podcast. I write an article here and there. I've got hundreds of articles on leadership and things I learned when I worked in retail on my website. And, um, you know, dig in there and send me an email or a direct message on Twitter and Instagram. If I can help you in some way, I'd be honored to just support you. If some of this is resonating with you and you're like, hey, I need more knowledge on how to do that, like just get in touch. I'd be happy to help. All right. Um, Excellent. Thank you so much, James. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. As I said before, if you guys wanted to get any of the links to everything that we talked about, they're going to be in our show notes, degreefree.co slash James Quandall, Q-U-A-N-D-A-H-L. And a couple of things before you go. If you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter, degreefree.co slash newsletter. Our newsletter comes out once a week with different degree-free jobs, tips, resources that you can use to get hired all without a college degree. And the second thing before you go, if you did want to support the podcast, please leave us an honors review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can always reach out to us at contact at degreefree.co. Just send us an email. Tell us what's on your mind. Until next time, guys. Allah.